that gives us steadfast courage. You are the only one that gives us hope. You are the only place that we can turn to in the middle of dark seasons of our souls. You are our hope. And that's why we gather now around your word to fix our eyes upon you. So, Father, we ask that in your precious name, for your namesake and your glory and for our good, you would do a work in us this morning that would enable us to navigate and have a voice for the dark seasons of our souls. We long for something supernatural to take place. So, Holy Spirit, fix our eyes on Christ and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. Habakkuk, chapter 1. And while you guys are turning to Habakkuk, chapter 1, this section that we're going to go through reminded me of a story. Most of the stories that I tell are of my own kids. Some of you said, I love hearing about your kids. Well, you're going to hear about them again, but this time... Uh, they aren't the ones doing the silly things. Unfortunately, this story is to my shame as a terrible father. So buckle in, hold up, because it was, uh, it was awful. Ethan, my precious son, uh, comes in from outside. I was in my bedroom, and he comes in from outside, and he walks in and just kind of uh, moseys around in my room and, and has that look about him that he needs to tell me something, but he doesn't really want to tell me. And so I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm okay. I said, is there anything going on? No, 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 not really. And I just sat down. I, I sat with him eye to eye, eye level, and I said, hey, Ethan, is there, is there something that you need to tell me? And his eyes started to well up with tears, and he said, yeah. What he, what he was going to tell me was that uh, the swing set that we have in our backyard, it's, it's hooked down with these tow cables, these kind of motorcycle tie cables uh, that have a hook, and you we screwed them into the, um, into the fence so that they would hold the swing set down because as the kids are swinging, it kind of moves up and down. They had taken one of those hooks out. They had hooked it onto the swing, and they couldn't get it out. Not that big of a deal. But to my son, it was everything. And as his eyes were welling up with tears, he said, I have something I need to tell you, but I'm afraid. I said, why are you afraid, buddy? You don't have to be afraid. And he said, I'm afraid you're going to get mad at me if I tell you. And I just, I mean, my eyes started filling with tears. I just gave him the biggest hug. I said, Ethan, you need to know there's nothing that you could ever tell me that would make me love you any less. I am proud of you. I love you. You are my son. Nothing will ever change that. And you could just see his little frown turn into a smile. I said, do you know that I love you? He goes, yeah. Do you know that I, I'm so proud of you? Yeah. Do you know that there's nothing that you could ever tell me that would make me love you any less? Yeah. I was like, show me the hook. Come on, show me the swing set. So he went outside, and it was uh, an easy fix, no big deal. And I told him, see, you didn't have to worry. You didn't have to worry. I, I love you, and that's not going to change. You can bring anything, any concern, any care, you can bring it to me. Now, obviously, in this story, Ethan was concerned because he, he felt that he had sinned against me. He had felt concerned for the fact that he had disobeyed me. I hadn't really given him a, a rule that he had disobeyed, but he just felt that he had been foolish and had messed something up in our house, on our playground. For us, though, I think... Often we say those same words to our Heavenly Father. I have something that I want to say, but I don't think I can say it because I think you're going to get mad at me. Not necessarily because it's a sinful thing that we're dealing with, a sin that we've committed that we say, God, I don't really want to bring this to you. That does happen. We see that all the way in chapter 3 of Genesis in the garden where Adam and Eve hide because they don't want to talk about their sin. Man, I think that so often it's not so much the sin that's going on inside of us but the trouble that's going on around us, trials that we're going through, difficulties that we are enduring and encountering, and we say, God, I want to say something, but I don't want you to get mad at me. Will God get mad if we share our hearts with him? I think Habakkuk is going to answer that question for us this morning. The introduction to the book of Habakkuk is not like any of the introductions that you find in the epistles. It's not like an introduction of Paul, grace to you, peace to you, mercy upon you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing like that. It just is an instantly chaotic, loud, bombastic wrestling with God. 
It just jumps right in. And I believe as Habakkuk jumps right into what he has as a complaint against God, he is going to teach us unbelievable truths this morning. So I want to read these verses, and I want to ask God's blessing, because none of this will make sense. None of this will be able to be implemented in our own lives if we do not have God's Spirit to enable us to fine-tune our thinking, to recalibrate our feeling, and to be able to give voice to our laments. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Father, these, these verses are holy ground. We dare not rush in. We dare not move quickly into these verses, into this scene in Habakkuk. We, we dare not move quickly out of it. We want to linger this morning in the tone of what Habakkuk is struggling with, in the way in which he is lamenting. We want to linger with, with fear, with trepidation, with care, with caution, and with hope. God, make us hopeful in the midst of despair. As we linger alongside Habakkuk, we listen to his words, and we ask how we can do the same thing. Even this morning, God, give voice to our supplications before you. God, we need your help. What we are asking is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit doing a magnificent, miraculous work of the, the gift of illumination, opening our eyes. So we pray with the psalmist, open our eyes to build wonderful things from your law. Enable us to see, to hear, and to live out what your word would tell us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through these four verses. We're going to walk through them, we're going to unpack them, and then I want to navigate what those look like in our own lives. Hopefully answering some questions that you might have about this text and bringing its implications out for us to live out and to live on even this morning. So verse 1, Habakkuk starts. You remember the history here. Josiah was king. He was a good king. He had brought reform in the southern kingdom in Judah. And then he had been killed on the battlefield in Megiddo against a, a fight with Necho II from Egypt. He had been killed, and Necho had put a, a king in his place, Josiah's son in his place, and, or his brother in his place. And what he had done is um, put one of the most uh, moronic and wicked kings that he could possibly find on the throne so that his brother brought just all of the reforms that Josiah had been implementing. This brother took him and turned him 180 degrees and brought the entire nation back down into idolatry and away from God. That's where Habakkuk is writing. God, we were going the right direction, and now it's been turned. We were going hard after you, and now we're going the exact opposite way. And so he sees an oracle. Verse 1, my Bible says the oracle. Literally, the word is the burden. It's an oracle as far as a prophecy that Habakkuk is going to receive, but it's a burden. It's a burden for Habakkuk to feel these things, to, to voice these things, and to see these things. And that's what it says. It's a burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, this either means that Habakkuk saw a vision of what God was saying, or it probably means that this is a burden of what Habakkuk is actually seeing, historically speaking. He's watching these things play themselves out in front of his very eyes. And as he sees and feels the weight and the burden of what's going on with his own people, verses 1 through 4, he's just talking about his own people. Babylon is not included yet. They're going to come up later, but right now this is just Judah. And he's going to cry out and he's going to say in verse 2, How long, O Lord, how long am I going to call for help and you will not hear me? How long? This is a timing. I've been calling, I've been calling, I've been calling. You haven't said anything. You haven't returned to, back to me. You haven't gotten back to me. How long? You're being inattentive, God. 
You're not listening. You can listen, but you're not listening. I cry out violence to you. This word for cry at the end of verse 2, I cry out. This is a word for screaming in agony and anguish. This isn't just, you know, dear, dear Heavenly Father, please help me. No, this is a, a scream of agony. God, listen to me. Help. And I cry out to you, violence. God, look at the violence that's happening here in your entire countrymen, in your chosen people. Look at what they're doing. This word for violence is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, uh, in the days of Noah. This is why God destroyed the earth, wickedness and disobedience. He devastates the entirety of the whole globe with the flood because of this word, violence. He sees violence everywhere. Habakkuk says, the same violence that happened in Genesis 6 is happening here. And God, I'm pleading with you to do something, and you're not doing anything. He cares. Habakkuk cares about human life and human dignity. Look at what's happening to my own people. Look at what's happening to people made in the image of God. If I could sum up Judah's problems at this point, here are just a couple of them. They have a collapsing economy. They have diminishing productivity. They have a food shortage. They have violence happening all over the place. They have social injustice, and they have a wholesale disregard for what God has said in his word. That list sounds very similar to what America's going through, right? It's a very similar list. We're going through the same things. They're self-destructing, so much so that God has to send four different prophets to them. Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, four different prophets. You know that you're not in a good place when God has to send a carload full of prophets to you. And here they are. And Habakkuk says, we are crying out and you're not listening. More than that, verse 3, you're not doing anything. Habakkuk then asks his second question, why do you make me see iniquity? You're making me see. You're forcing me to go through this horrible season. You could stop it, but you're not stopping it. God is actively making Habakkuk watch what's happening to his own people while God is passively waiting and not doing anything. That's Habakkuk's complaint. And he says, you're making me to see iniquity. You cause me to look on wickedness. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say that would bring uh, the strife and contention uh, to stop. Nothing is reconciling my people. Nothing is turning them back to you. And God, you are not doing anything. Verse 4, therefore, because I am proclaiming the goodness of God, I'm proclaiming the law of God, and no one is listening to me, Therefore, the law, the Torah, what I'm proclaiming to my people is ignored. My Bible says ignored. Your Bible might say something like uh, paralyzed is a, is a popular translation of that word. It's a word that literally means numb, chilled, or frozen. God, your law is frozen. It's, it's pointless. It's ineffective. It's not doing what you claimed it would do. You said that the law, in the law, you said that if you obey, you are blessed. And if you disobey, you are cursed. And I'm bringing that law to my own people. And I'm telling them, you need to repent and obey, or else you will only experience judgment and cursing. And nothing's happening here. Nobody's listening to it. And even beyond that, it seems like the disobedient people aren't being cursed. They're being blessed. If you could sum up everything as he finishes, he says, justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice comes out perverted. Nothing's working. Bad is winning. Good is losing. And God, you're not doing anything. That's Habakkuk's complaint. Two questions. How long and why? How long and why? <laughs> Those are two questions that I've asked before of God. A question of timing. God, how long am I going to have to wait? How long before you step in and do something? How long? And a question of tolerance. Why are you allowing these things? Why are you allowing these things to take place and you're not stepping in and you're not doing something about it? Habakkuk is struggling because things were going so well with Josiah. But then God allowed it all to go south so quickly that he didn't do anything about it. And so Habakkuk is saying, from the most vulnerable, honest place of his soul, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? Please, I need to know. What are you doing? 
Brothers and sisters, if you haven't hit a spot like this in your walk with the Lord, uh, I don't want to be a downer here, but I know that it's coming. I know that it's coming. The Bible assures us of persecution, of trials, of suffering. In this world, we will have tribulation. Uh, Jesus promised us that in John chapter 16. James chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you encounter. We know trials are coming. Many of us have already experienced them. Those trials that just knock the wind out of your soul, where you just feel like you can't breathe spiritually. You have no oxygen left in your lungs. And you just cry out and you say, God, why? What are we to do in those moments? What are we to think in those moments? How are we to interact with God in those moments? I think you could sum it all up in one profound and precious word. And it's the word lament. Lament. This is what Habakkuk is doing in the entirety of his prophetic book. These three chapters are a lament. It's Habakkuk lamenting before God. And I believe this is what we should do in the exact same way, in the same moments that Habakkuk is struggling, in these trials, in these moments of despair and suffering, we should do the exact same thing, lament. So for our purposes this morning, I want to ask three questions. Question number one, what is lament? What is lament? Question number two, is it okay? Is God okay with lament? And question number three, why is lament so important? Question number one, what is lament? Number two, is God okay with lament? And number three, why is it so important for us to know, to learn, and to do biblical lamenting in our own lives? So question number one, what is lament? What is lament? One definition that you could write down that I think is helpful. Lament is a prayer that voices a complaint to God about distress. It's a prayer that voices a complaint to God about distress. And it's uttered to plead God to act on behalf of the sufferer. On the sufferer's behalf, God, please act. I'm bringing a complaint to you. Please listen. Please act. Now, when we hear the word complaining, if you're like me, you instantly go to The Apostle Paul, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Wait, are we allowed to complain? That doesn't sound like a good word. Or you go to uh, the people in the wilderness that complained uh, against God and the earth opened up and swallowed them up. So obviously there's a kind of complaining that's wrong. That's not what this kind of complaining is. Lament complaining is a complaining that presses into the character of God. Here's what the complaint is. In lament, what you're saying is, God, I know who you are. I know your character. I know what you've said about your law. I know what you've said about obedience. I know who you are. You're trustworthy. You will never fail us. You're faithful. And yet, in my personal experience, those don't seem to match. That's the complaint. God, this experience doesn't seem to match. What I'm going through right now doesn't seem to match who you say you are. I believe who you are, and that's why I'm struggling with what's going on around me. Lament always happens when your experience doesn't match what you know to be true about God. The prophet's theological understanding of God as just and righteous isn't matched by his experience of God. Same thing that happens with Job. Job knows who God is and he's struggling. This is why it's a complaint. God, I'm struggling to understand. I know who you claim to be. I've seen it many times before and this doesn't seem like it fits. That's why you raise the complaint to God. How does this fit? It's a discrepancy. There's a discrepancy between the revelation God has given and the experience that we're going through. But here's the key, and this is why it's good to complain in these moments. This is why you bring the argument. Sometimes Job talks about, uh, and you'll see other places in the Old Testament, of raising an argument to God. It's kind of a judicial word to say, okay, uh, evidence number one, who you say you are. Evidence number two, uh, before the jury, what I'm going through, tell me how these reconcile. But here's the key. This is why it's so necessary to complain, to bring this argument before God in a biblical lamenting kind of way. The alternative to this, and I have even some of my dearest, closest friends have gone through difficulties in their lives. There's a big buzzword out there called deconstructionism, where they go through a difficult moment that doesn't seem to jive. It doesn't fit with what they know to be true based off of the word of God. And so when this book and their life experiences don't match, You end up tending to to deconstruct this book, to throw this book away, and just live based off of what you see in your own life, your own circumstances. This is why lament is so important. Because instead of saying, 
One of these two has to go. Instead of saying, the Bible says one thing, experience says the other, only one can stay. A complaint biblically, a lament biblically is to say, it looks like they're mutually exclusive, but I know better. And I'm not letting go. Lament is a stubborn refusal to let go of God. I'm not letting go of this book. I'm not letting go of God, your character of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. I'm not letting go. I'm clinging on even though this makes no sense and I'm really frustrated by it. I'm not letting go. That's a biblical lament. Mark Vregip, who wrote a book on lament, which is an excellent book, he wrote these words, lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we wouldn't even know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and anger uh, can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walk through sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. What's more, without the sacred song of sorrow, we'll miss the lessons historic laments are intended to teach us. And then he ends by saying this, lament is how Christians grieve. Lament is a language for loss. It's a solution for silence. It's a category for complaint. It's a framework for feelings. It's a process for pain. And it's a way to worship. And two questions that nearly every biblical lament includes are these two questions. How long and why? How long and why? God, if you love me, why are you allowing this to happen? This is a question about the character of God. Why are you allowing this to happen? And then where are you? How long will you uh, tarry until you step in and fix this? That's a question of his nearness, his closeness. So you have questions about his character. You have questions about his closeness. That's lament. Moses, Elijah, Abraham, David, Jonah, Job, they all speak this way. So many others, Jeremiah, so many prophets speak this way to God. There's a great theology of lament and complaint. And Obviously, we're not going to dive as deeply as we could. This is a sermon series unto itself if we were to dialogue about lament. We're only scratching the surface. But hopefully, you'll be able to understand a little bit more what biblical lament looks like, and it will give voice to your own hearts as you suffer. There are three main components in laments, three main components in biblical laments. The three main components, number one, you just bring a complaint to God. You bring a complaint, an honest uh, evaluation of your circumstances and surroundings, and you say, God, I don't understand. It's an honest complaint that you voice your heart to God. And then uh, the second aspect involved in, in lament is you stubbornly refuse to let go of God. You fight to remember him. A lot of times you'll find in laments the, the, the turn, but I will remember. This doesn't make any sense, and it looks like you've left me, but I will remember. We're going to see it even in the book of Habakkuk. He's going to go through this process of complaint to trust. He's going to turn to fight to remember God's character. And then finally, the last aspect of laments. It's an honest uh, complaint before God. It's a fight to trust God. And then it's a plea for his presence. There's only one lament in the Bible that doesn't end with a plea for his presence, and that's Psalm 88. It's just only a complaint before God. There's no, but I remember this, I will recall. There's no, I, I, I will uh, feast in the house of God. I will be in the presence of the Lord. It just ends with sadness and sorrow in that complaint. But those three elements, you, you saw these three elements. If you were able to read some of those lament psalms in the book of Lamentations that I sent out a few days ago in our church email, you saw those, that pattern of here's my complaint, here's what I'm struggling with, I'm just voicing honestly what's going on in my heart, here's my fight to trust in you in the middle of it, and God, I want your nearness, I want your presence. I don't need any of these things, just give me you and I'll have enough. That's a lament, that's a biblical lament. When you say okay, God, these things that are going on in my life, they didn't just happen. They didn't just happen. You're behind these things. When you say those words, you are proclaiming the sovereignty of God. You're saying, I don't understand what you're up to, but you're pro proclaiming the sovereignty of God. And those kinds of questions are an expression of worship to say, I know your character, I know your goodness, and I'm pleading with you. I know you are good. I know you're sovereign. Can you help me understand why? One author says it this way, Biblical lament is not aimed primarily at or only at catharsis, healing, or self-actualization. Lament's primary motivation is to take whatever distress that we experience before the throne of God, as Habakkuk does, and then await his response. 
And Habakkuk's going to do that before us in this beautiful book. That's a little bit about what lament is. Point number two, that's lament, what lament is. Now, the, the question that we all ask ourselves, wait, is it okay to talk like this? Is this okay? Is lament good? Is God okay? Question number two, is God okay with lament? Let's start off with one commentator. He says this, Christians perennially have trouble with lament prayers. What are some of the challenges, practically speaking? Well, lament can be characterized as an irritating complaint, or worse, adolescent whining, moaning about hardships in life instead of facing them head-on bravely. Lament could be considered speech for the weak, when one should put on a brave face during trouble. After all, suffering and trials produce something in the life of the believer, patience, perseverance, and other good traits. For this reason, one should not whine about suffering, but rather embrace it as a good gift from God. In this way, Christians construe all suffering as soul-building. No time to whine. God's doing something in you and in the church. Finally, Christians may characterize lament prayer as impoverished of faith. In this vein of thought, lament prayer is equated to a rebellious protest where the petitioner, in effect, turns away from the Lord. Is it okay to lament? Is God okay with lament? Or, asked another way, is Habakkuk doing something wrong in verses 1 through 4, specifically 2 through 4? Is he doing something wrong? Or, said another way, is he sinning here? Well, first of all, I would answer that by saying, I think that's the wrong question. And that's my answer for getting out of hard questions. So I think it's the wrong question. Let's move on. No, I think it's the wrong question. I I think that there's two ways to ask that question. I think there's two ways to ask, is he in sin? the, The first way you ask that question is by saying, he's in sin. By judging him, by saying no one should ever talk that way, he's being disrespectful, he's absolutely wrong, you should never speak this way to God, this is sin. Why should anyone even feel this way? Why should you feel the need to say these things? Just trust God and stop whining. I don't know if you have people like that in your life who, you know, somebody is struggling with depression and they go, they go to this person, they say, um, what should I do? I'm struggling with depression. They just say, stop being depressed and be happy. <laughs> if, if it was that easy, the person would have stopped already. The person would have fixed it. That's why they're coming to you for help. So I definitely think if you're asking the question with really a statement of judgment, Habakkuk's in sin, this is wrong, no one should ever talk this way. I think if you're saying that, just frankly and honestly, can I just say, I don't think I want to be around you when I'm going through my season of suffering. And I do think you'll find three really amazing friends that you'll love. And they're in the book of Job. Go hang out with them. You'll really enjoy hanging out with them. There's a second way to ask this question. Less judgmental and more just honest. Are we allowed to ask this question? Are we allowed to wrestle with God? Are we allowed to bring a complaint before God? It's not a judgmental way of asking. It's an honest way of asking, is this really okay? Can we talk like this? Is Habakkuk being sinful or is this okay? So to that, I would say two things. I would say, first of all, Habakkuk is sinful, right? He is not a perfect person. He is not sinless, period. So we can get that out of the way. He is being honest here, but he's not sinless. He's not a perfect person. But the second thing that I want to say, and I believe that it's biblical, and we're going to try, I'm going to try and make a case for this this morning. I don't think there's anything wrong with what he's saying. I, don't think there's any, I think that we should do exactly what he's doing. I think that we need to learn from Habakkuk's lament about what it looks like to press into the character of God in the midst of sorrow and suffering. I don't think it's wrong. Michael Card, who many of you know as a Christian uh, musical artist, he's written several very famous songs and has written several books. He's written two books on uh, lament, biblical lament, uh, the, the hidden uh, face of God, I believe, is one, and the sacred sorrow, I believe, is the other one. They are just profound books. Michael Card, amazing books on lament. He says this. I love this. But, you inevitably respond, isn't it wrong to complain by lamenting to God? Is it not a sign of rebellion and faithlessness? How can it be appropriate to show God the anger that's in my heart? These are all fair questions, but let me do what Jesus usually did and answer your question with another question. 
Why then does God enshrine so many laments in his word? Laments, we must realize, are God's word. Why are so many biblical characters shown as disappointed and frustrated with God? Do we seek to learn from all of the other facets of their lives but this one? I would put it to you this way. People like Job, David, Jeremiah, and even Jesus reveal to us that prayers of complaint can still be prayers of faith. They represent the last refusal to let go of the God who may seem to be absent or worse, uncaring. If this is true, then lament expresses one of the most intimate moments of faith, not a denial of it. It's supreme honesty before a God whom my faith tells me I can trust. He encourages me to bring everything to him as an act of worship, my disappointment, my frustration, even hate I might have towards others. Only lament uncovers this kind of new faith, a biblical faith that better understands God's heart as it is revealed through Jesus Christ. Habakkuk is never really rebuked by God in this book. So if he is doing something that is absolutely sinful, maybe God would have stepped in and said, no, you shouldn't be talking this way. Also, let me give you two other reasons why I believe biblically these questions, how long and why, aren't inherently sinful. Number one, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, perfected, glorified, sinless saints in heaven turn to God as they're watching the world and they see uh, the persecution that's happening. They see their own martyrdom. They were killed. Uh, their heads were cut off for knowing Jesus and for loving and treasuring the gospel. And they turn to God and they say, okay, how long is it going to take before you avenge our death? How long is it going to take before you go down there and you stop what's happening? So if they're sinless and they're perfect and they're glorified saints and they ask, how long, God? means that that question isn't a wrong, inherently sinful question. Secondly, the question of why. Jesus asked that question. And obviously Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So how long and why asking God these questions are not inherently sinful questions. They're not incompatible with faith. All those lament psalms that we read, and there's so many more, the majority of psalms are lament psalms. Is it okay to talk this way? You might look at these words and you might say, well, I don't even think they're right. Look at what Habakkuk says in verse 4. The law has been deemed ineffective. It's ignored, it's ineffective, it's numb. It doesn't produce anything, it's pointless. And then he says this, justice is never upheld. Apparently, Habakkuk didn't go to a biblical counseling session dealing with communication because in communication, we know that we should not use always and nevers, right? You always do this. You never do this. No, that's not a true statement. There isn't one time that justice has been upheld. I don't think Habakkuk's even right in what he is saying, but it's not about being right. Lament, I, I, I hope that you will hear very clearly from God's word this morning, lament isn't about being right. It's being about, it's, it's being about faithful. It's about being faithful to God. Psalm 73, if you read that psalm, and you can read it later on your own time, but you hopefully read it beforehand. Psalm 73, Asaph says, God, it looks like there's no reason to be a believer. Nothing good happens because I'm a believer. In fact, and then he goes on to say, all of the wicked people, they're living long. They don't die. Nothing bad happens to them. Is that a right statement? It's not a right statement. The cancer rate is the same for both believer and non-believer. For us today, coronavirus doesn't check your religious status and figure out who you are and then choose to infect you. Asaph is not right in what he is saying, but lament isn't about rightness. It's about faithfulness. It's about being faithful. Brothers and sisters, the God that we worship has feelings. He knows our pain. He cries with us. He gave us the command to weep with those who weep, and that command emanates from his character. Therefore, he does it with us. And he holds every tear that we cry in a bottle, Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. And he will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Our God is not the stoic, far-off God that doesn't feel with us, doesn't cry with us, doesn't break with us. His heart aches with us. This has massive implications for all of life. This just, again, this is a sermon series unto itself about what lament looks like, going through biblical laments. I was, I was talking with my wife about this, and we were just talking about its implications for us practically. One of the, 
massive implications about biblical lament in our own lives. It has to do with parenting. This has massive implications for parenting. How many of you have had the experience in parenting where you do something and one of your kids says, wait, that's not fair? You guys have had that experience, right? Wait, mom, dad, that's not fair. Or maybe, how is that fair? It's not fair. Instantly, if you're like me, a sinful fleshly person with a lot of pride, you instantly react by saying, whoa, 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 how dare you ask that question? I'm your authority. You should respect me. You shouldn't talk back to me. How dare you? And secondly, if you do want to ask that question, there's a formula, a very specific formula that you need to follow in order to be able to appropriately ask that question. But look at what your child's doing in that moment. Your child knows your character. Your child knows that you love goodness. You work for what is righteous. You love justice. That you're fair. If they didn't believe that about you as a parent, when something unfair happens in the world, they wouldn't be surprised at it. They'd say, of course it's not going to happen fairly because look at who my dad is. But when something unfair happens in their lives, they turn to you and they say, wait, this doesn't jive with who you are. I know you're good. It's a question of lament. Your kids are lamenting before you. Wait, how is this fair? So instead of responding in our flesh, pridefully so or authoritatively so, saying you must ask it this way or else I'm not listening to you, we should pursue imaging our Heavenly Father to our children. We should pursue imaging and showing them the picture of our Heavenly Father. When we come before God, we say, God, this doesn't look fair. This doesn't look right. I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. I'm struggling with doubt, with fear, with anxiety. God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in those moments. They're welcome. These questions are welcomed by our Heavenly Father. You're taking His sovereignty seriously, and He can handle you wrestling with these problems. It'd be like when my family goes for a walk, we go up and down our our street, uh, past the, the houses, so hopefully we can see our neighbors and just talk to them and say hi to them and love on them. And as you go down this way, you turn around the, the corner and come back, and there's a, a house. Um, dear friend, one of our neighbors, he has this huge dog, terrifying dog. Behind a fence, this wrought iron white fence that we know no dog's going to come through. But as I'm walking and I'm holding Chelsea's hand and we're walking past this house, the dog's in the back, hears us walking, just comes barreling out, just barking, looks like it's going to kill us. I'm just walking, don't, don't worry about this, there's a fence between us and the dog, will be okay. But my daughter freaks out, right? Just uh, starts crying, uh, clings, clings to my leg, don't, daddy's going to get me. Do I look at my daughter in that moment and say, grow up, Chelsea, it's okay, you'll be fine, stop getting scared, don't be... So silly here, grow up, come on, mature already. <laughs> no, I bend down, I hold her, I console her. Hey, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not leaving you, I'm right here. And I say, look, there's a fence here. I give her evidence that you can trust. There's a fence, this dog's not coming through. And yeah, it kind of looks scary, but it actually just loves you and it wants to play with you. You, you step in, as, as, as earthly fathers, we would never just say, stop it, stop whining and grow up. So too, our Heavenly Father doesn't say, grow up already, when we bring these complaints before Him. He's patient with us in our weakness. He doesn't mind humbling Himself in order to bolster our fragile faith and our wavering grip on Him and His Word. He's so eager to do that. He did that at the cross, once and for all, to say, do you have any doubts or concerns or cares or questions or worries that I love you? Once and for all, let me prove it to you. I will send my son to die in your place, to take your penalty, to take your punishment. Let me do this once and for all so that you will know I love you. I love you. That's why Jude tells us we should have mercy on those who are doubting. Why? Because that's emanating from God's character. Have mercy on those who doubt. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, that... We talked about it a little bit last Wednesday. We'll be talking about it more in our small groups. Encourage the faint-hearted. Somebody comes before you saying, I'm struggling. You don't rebuke those people. You encourage those people. Just like God did. Remember in our study with the book of Judges with Gideon, God does not say, how dare you question me? Hey, whatever your question is, okay, fleece dry, grass wet. Okay, grass dry, fleece wet, whatever. I want to reassure you. Doubting Thomas, right? 
infamously known for doubting and not trusting God. Jesus doesn't show up and go, hey, I heard something. I heard you say you weren't going to believe. He says, what do you need to believe? I'll show it to you. No rebuke. I'll show it to you. Lament is rooted and founded in the freedom and grace that we know in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the character of our God. There's freedom and grace to come before him. So, what is lament? Talked about it a little bit. Why or is it okay for us? Is God okay with lament? Amen and amen he is. Absolutely. What do we miss out on if we don't lament? Question number three, why should we lament? If we are allowed to talk like this, and we are, if we should talk like this, and we should, let me ask first, what happens if we don't talk like this? I'll just give you a couple points. If we don't talk like this, worship becomes impossible. If we don't lament, worship becomes impossible. We can't grow intellectually and spiritually in our hearts. We'll start pretending that it's all okay when it's not, and all of your energy is going to go into fixing it yourself, and you won't be able to fix your eyes on Jesus. So let's flip that around. Why should we lament? Let me give you three reasons why we should lament, and then we'll be done. Number one, lament honestly expresses our hearts to the Lord. We should lament because, number one, lament honestly expresses our hearts to the Lord. Lament is honestly assessing your heart and pleading with God regarding the things that you're feeling and thinking. Just forget spirituality for just a second. Forget being spiritual. It's just a dumb thing to not be honest with something, with someone who knows everything you're thinking. I don't know if you're like me. This is what I do. This is how stupid I am. As I'm getting ready to pray before God, I filter my prayer requests, right? I'm filtering. Can I say this? I shouldn't say that. Okay, am I allowed to say this? No, I'm not going to say that. Can I? Uh, this is a, okay, that's a good one. And I filter my prayer requests before God as if he doesn't know the, the filtered ones, the ones that I held back, that I held in my heart. Here are the ones that you can see, God, but don't see these ones. How dumb is that? Lament is saying, God hears all of me. God hears everything. I'm not hiding any of it. I'm not holding it back. You, you see it anyway. Lament honestly expresses our hearts before the Lord. And by the way, you have to start here if you want to change, if you want to grow, if you want to go somewhere else, you have to know where you are first before you go there. It's like if you said to me, I want to go to Disneyland. How do I get there? My first question to you would be, why are you going to Disneyland? Because it's the coronavirus and the clothes. My second question to you would be, where are you currently? Because if you tell me where you are, I can tell, me, I can tell you how to get to Disneyland. Where are you right now? That's the first question. And if you say to me, I have no idea where I am, then I say, I don't know how to help you. I'm sorry. I can't tell you where to go and how to get there if you don't know where you are. Same thing with lament prayers. Lament prayers say, here's my starting point, God. Here's everything that I have. Here's where I'm starting. This is actually one of the reasons why imprecatory psalms, these are the psalms where they're very violent psalms. These are the psalms, God smite my enemies, do terrible things to those who hate your name. Just judgment psalms, psalms of anger against your enemies. And some people say, that doesn't sound biblical. Well, it's in the Bible. But some people, they look at those and they say, what is the point of these? And I think one of the main reasons why they're there is because that's the beginning. You cannot love your enemies until you know who your enemies are. So this is saying, these are my enemies. And I'm struggling, God. It honestly, lament honestly expresses our hearts to God. By the way, this is such an easy thing in church circles. It's so easy to put on a face and pretend that everything's okay. That's the opposite of lament, right? Lament says, here I am. Here's all of me. But so often, how many times have you been asked, hey, how are you doing? How was your week? And you know it's terrible. You're struggling. And yet, instead of saying, hey, I need to talk with you, I've been struggling. Maybe not now. Maybe church is starting, we need to go, but I'm struggling. How often do we just go, I'm fine. It was okay. Okay. It was okay. One of the things that I'm really hopeful about this season of the coronavirus is that when we are no longer isolated and we're able to see each other, I'm praying that it has grown a sense of authenticity within our hearts where we want to share, this is who I am and this is what I've been struggling with. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to pretend anymore. I hope that we grow tired of plain pretend at church. Without lament, we have no way of being authentic. We begin to pretend. We begin to cover up, and we begin to deny what's really taking place in our hearts. Look, in the middle of suffering, 
we have three choices. You can either say, number one, there's no God. Number two, there is a God, but he doesn't care. Or number three, there's a God who cares, and he's doing something that I don't understand. That's where I want to be, and that's lament. He's, he's there. He, he's not gone, and he doesn't not care. He loves us. He's just up to something that I don't comprehend. I don't understand what he's doing. So lament, we come with our pain. Don't come with your pride. We come with our pain. And we say, God, I don't get this. I don't get this. Pastor Jim Boyce, uh, who is now with the Lord, uh, passed away from cancer. He said it this way. It's better to ask these questions than to not ask them because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us towards the right positive response. Alexander McLaren writes, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like a poisonous mist in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it's made articulate. So why do we lament? Why is it important to lament? Because it expresses honestly what's going on in your heart. It's an honest expression of what's happening in your heart. Number two, second reason why we should lament. Lament sets our anchor deeper into the character of God. Lament lament sets our anchor deeper into the character of God. You remember, lament has a formula, a complaint, an honest complaint, and then a fight to trust and remember. That's what lament does. It forces you to, as you're asking the question, where are you? Are you gone? Have you forsaken me? You're trying to fix that question. You're trying to answer and resolve that question by fighting to remember, have you ever forsaken anyone? Okay, no. And you're going back to the scriptures and you've never forsaken anybody? You're not going to forsake me. Have you ever left anyone? No, you're not going to leave me. It's a fight to remember. And as you fight to remember in lament, you plunge your anchor deeper into the character of God. You're plunging it deep. When difficulties and doubts and fears arise, you have an amazing opportunity to dive deeply into the character of God. And then you'll begin to see how infinitely enormous he is and how small you are. That's what most laments end up doing in the Bible. They they make God so much bigger and us so much smaller. We do this naturally, by the way. This is why when we take vacations, we love to go to mountains or or beaches, or or places where we just see the grandeur of God, and we feel small. We love that. Typically, people don't, you know, take a vacation to Kansas and sit with a lawn chair and just look at the plains, right? We like majesty. We like grandeur. Why? Because we love to see the grandeur of God, and we love to feel that seemingly insignificance that we we feel so small. What is man that you're mindful of me? But it's it's significant insignificance. Well, suffering is just, it's imposed understanding of how amazing God is and infinite he is and how small we are. And in these moments, worship happens. If you don't drop your anchor deeper into the character of God, you won't be able to worship. Maybe God's going to answer you. Usually he doesn't. Maybe not the timing that you want. Maybe not the way that you want. We're going to see that in Habakkuk. But God is not so unkind to answer our prayers in the timing that we would want because the delaying of God is always purposeful. He's working something. He's forcing us to plunge that anchor deeper into his character and goodness. Finally, number three, lament clarifies what we really need. Why should we lament? Number one, we should lament because lament honestly expresses our hearts before the Lord so we can honestly see what's going on. Then secondly, lament helps us plunge our anchor deeper into the character of God. And then thirdly and finally, lament clarifies what we really need. Lament clarifies what it is that we really need. Lament tells us that the things that we ask for are almost never the things that we really need. Most of our prayers are provision prayers. God, please give me this. But lament presses us through those to presence prayers. God, I just want your presence. I just want your presence. Uh, Michael Carden, in one of his books on lament, says, gives an example of a dear friend that he had that was in a terrible uh, accident and paralyzed and just wanted to die and angry at God and saying, God, heal me. God, please fix what's going on. And just didn't feel like anything was happening. And then pressed through, in lament, pressed through the complaint, the frustration, even the anger and the doubt and the fear and the concern and the worry, pressed through to God, where are you? What are you doing? And then came to the place where just felt the nearness of God, the presence of God, knowing God's never going to leave me, never going to forsake me. And then his prayer turned from heal me to just don't ever leave me. 
I just want you. I have you. I know I have you. I just don't leave me. And, and he said in the book, his prayer was, God, you don't have to heal me anymore. You don't have to heal me. That was my prayer. That's no longer my prayer. You don't have to heal me. Just don't ever leave me. Don't ever leave me. Lament is worship that presses through to end with praise. It's, a, it's being stuck in a moment of despair, but pressing through to get to hope. Often we want to go around the clouds of suffering in our lives and lament forces us to push straight through them. Wrestling with sorrow instead of rushing to end it is a gift from God. And in lament, in our heart brokenness, we see with crystal clarity that we have nowhere else to turn but God. Nowhere else that we can go to for hope but God himself. Lament clarifies what we really need and what we really need is God. This morning we can see, hopefully, Lord willing, that we can lament. But over the course of our lives, we're going to learn how to lament. We will learn how. I want us to learn from Habakkuk's lament. You remember what Habakkuk began with. He was saying, bad is winning, good is losing. You aren't doing anything about it, God. But can I remind you, just look really quickly back in his lament. Look at what's involved in this lament. He says, number one, in verse four, the law is good, right? He's saying the law is supposed to do something. It's not accomplishing it, but it's good. If they would listen to it, the law is good. It gives life. He's also saying you have the power to save, right? Verse two, you can do something. You're not doing it, but you have the power. You are sovereign over us. You do control everything, and you can hear me. You hear me now, but you're not answering. But most importantly, there's a word in verse two on which hangs every aspect of Habakkuk's lament. How long, O Lord? Lord, in all capital letters, that's the covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. That's God's personal name, Yahweh. He is a covenant-keeping God. He has made a covenant. He's not turning back on it. So as Habakkuk brings the complaint to God, he's not saying, God, you're forgetting about us, you don't care about us. He's pleading with the character of God, saying, I know that you're Yahweh. Remember, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, who's filled with loving kindness, that word hesed. I want to do good. Hesed, my favorite definition of hesed is when the one from whom you have no right to expect anything gives you everything. That's the character that Habakkuk is pleading with. He's relying on. He's saying, God, I know that you're a God of hesed. And you're not going to abandon us. But please work. Please act. Please do something. He's calling for help because of who he knows God to be. And brothers and sisters, if Habakkuk can call out in the midst of his suffering, how much more can we? We have a cross standing in front of us where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was slain on behalf of sinners. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because of God's hesed love. That is the once forever for all monument that we can cry out to God. And he is good, and he hears us, and he loves us, and he'll never, ever let us go. Now I know that in whatever pain I'm going through, it can never be punitive. It's never punishment because all of my punishment was poured out on Jesus. Therefore, I can cry out to God saying, God, help. God, hear. God, listen, knowing I have a heavenly father, no longer my judge, but my heavenly father who will never forsake me. I want to end with a story that Chuck Swindoll told I've shared this story a few years ago, and it's just so powerful, and I love it. So I wanted to share it here, and then we'll pray. Chuck Swindoll told a story once about a personal encounter that he had with a fellow student who was blind. He says this, quote, His name was John, and I spent a couple of hours a week reading to him. One day I asked him how he had lost his sight. He told me of an accident that had happened when he was a teenager and how at that point he had simply just given up on life. When the accident happened and I knew I would never see again, I felt that life had ended as far as I was concerned. I was bitter and angry with God for letting it happen to me, and I took my anger out on everyone around me. I felt that since I had no future, I wouldn't even lift a finger on my own behalf, let others wait upon me. I shut my bedroom door. I refused to come out except for meals. Swindoll says, I knew this young man was an eager learner and an earnest student, so I asked him what had changed his attitude. He told me this story. One day, in exasperation, my father came into my room and started giving me a lecture. 
He said he was tired of my feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming. It was still my job to put up the storm windows. And he yelled, you get those windows up by supper time tonight. And he slammed the door on his way out. Remember, this is a, a blind man. Go put up the windows. Well, said John, that made me so angry that I resolved to do it. Muttering and complaining to myself, I groped my way around the garage. I found the windows, a stepladder, all the necessary tools, and I went to work. They'll be sorry when I fall off this ladder and I break my neck. But little by little, groping my way around the house, I got the job done. Then he stopped, and his sightless eyes misted up as he told me. I later found out that at no time during the day had my father ever been more than four or five feet away from my side. Because our father is right by our side, we can cry out to him. Because we know that he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, we can cling to him. Because we know that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will never leave us, but he will always be with us. Then we don't have any evil to fear. We don't have any suffering to fear. We can rest in his goodness. And because he will never let go of us, we will fight to refuse to not let go of him. And brothers and sisters, because we know he loves us, we can bring our laments to him. God, we thank you so much for this incredible section of scripture. Thank you so much for Habakkuk and the ways in which he cried out to you and in his laments brought to you an honest assessment of what was going on in his soul, struggling, but pleading with the character of God. God, we want to do that even now as we sing. We want to sing in such a way that we would lament with Habakkuk maybe singing songs that he would have loved to have sung. And we want to cry out to you, walking through those three aspects of lament, honestly bringing complaints, honestly assessing our souls, fighting to trust you and not let go of you, but at the end, clinging to your presence and saying, God, even if none of the sorrow or suffering leaves, if I have you, I have all I need. Lord, from sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall. Hear my desperation. For so long I've bled and prayed God, come to my rescue. Even so, the thorn remains. Still, my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul. Questions without end. On my faith these billows roll God be now my shelter Why are you cast down my soul Hope in him who saves you When the fires have all grown cold Cause this heart to praise you sing this next verse in faith. Should my life be torn from me, every
every worldly pleasure when all I possess is green. God be then my treasure, be my vision in the Christ is sure and steady anchor. Christ is sure and steady anchor in the fuel.
God bless you this week as you hold fast to the anchor, as you bring your lament to Jesus who loves you, who gave himself to purchase you, to redeem you, who conquered sin and conquered death so that there is nothing that we have to fear. Bring your lament to him even this day. Trust in him, rest in him, throw your anchor deeper into his character and his goodness. He is sure, he is steady, and he is for you. God bless you as you live this week trusting, savoring, and cherishing Jesus above all things. God bless.